Father in heaven, we're once again, we want to thank you for your presence. We want to thank you for your desire to help us understand and to know you. And we just pray that we would, by spending this time again, know you a little bit better. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, um, so does anybody have any questions on, on this process before we, we move on from it? This is how, this is, this is how you achieve um, humus building in a soil through the direct experience of that soil, the direct input of that soil, rather than bringing overtly out onto and, and applying to your soil some other compost or some other manure material that was grown on a, under different conditions. And so the character of it's going to be different than whatever your soil is. This is your ultimate objective. If you have to, if you have to use um, organic matter from other sources, just be very judicious, judicious about what do you need and make sure that what you're getting is what you actually want to be applying to your soil. Um, yeah, go ahead. Well, of course, you have the initiation of planting the, planting the plant and the, 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 the seed, and then the plant germinates. And it immediately, after it gets to a certain point, start, when it starts photosynthesizing, it been, immediately begins dumping those, photos, those sugars into the soil to build the, the biological community. Um, that it will need to provide the resources it needs to grow and to, and to bear fruit. And then there's a steps to it. But you first you have the bacterial explosion, then you have the, all of the, the uh, microbial metabolites, metabolites that were produced as a result of that. The plant can then use in a, and, and produce a, a tremendous energy efficiency. And for, as a consequence of that, it has surplus lipids that can be dumped and in, exuded into the soil or dumped into the soil. I thought I had to have another one. You said I only had to have one. Um, and it's from those lipids that the, the, fungal po the fungal populations explode and they digest that down and that's what's actually um, broken down into the actual humus. Humus is 40% oil, lipids, fat. That's when you, when you understand that and you read the parable of the, of the ten virgins, you understand where the oil in the lamp is that was stored up. Now you have people, they have situations where it's not stored up because they, they didn't, they didn't think of it in those terms. And so when the crisis comes, there's oil to draw from. There's humus to draw from and all the nourishment that comes from it. But if it's not there, there's nothing to draw from. There might be a little bit there, but not enough to carry you through a tearing time, as the, as the parable says. You're not only, this is, this is the pressed down and overflowing principle. There's more to give than is needed when it's properly done. There's more to give than what's needed, and that's what you store up in the soil as humus. And a lot of people say you can't do that. Well, you can't do it because most of the conditions that they're trying to do it in are, are not sufficient to do it. God wants us a whole lot closer than we are. He wants us a whole lot more fruitful than we are. Um, but it requires us to be more like him in order to achieve that, and that's the same case here. You have to have the the correct construction in order to achieve this. Um, speaking of the biology, I guess someone asked me, I guess that um, it's being shared in another class, that, that um, biology is the means of um, achieving this. And I don't, um, I don't want to contradict anybody. And I'm completely open to listening to what anybody else has to say.
but I've never seen biology be able to create, some, create something out of nothing. And so you're, we're going to talk about biology in here because it's the final key. It's a, it's a critical component of bringing the soil to fully, fully functioning, a fully functioning state. But it's not the fundamental principle to bring it. There's other things that are required in order for that biology to fully function. And to, um, to, I just let me just put. This, I haven't observed. I haven't seen that happen. I've seen. I uh, I've used a lot of compost tea. It's a great material. And it, when you get to that place, the the world record holder for the largest vegetables uses compost tea. Um, a, 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 a man that grew the world record quantity of potatoes, 100 pounds off of one plant. You have three to five times more photosynthetic energy. We're not even close, folks. We, I mean, there's, you remember the grapes hauled out of the promised land? Um, we can do a whole lot more. We can do a whole lot more. Uh, so, so these materials are important, but they're important in their priority. They're important in their place. And we, we, we get ourselves into trouble when we try to put something in a place where it doesn't belong. Um, <laughs> So you can do a lot with it, but the question is, are you actually getting to full, full functionality? Are you actually getting to the place where you're gonna, you can bear fruit some 30, some 60, some 100 fold? Um, and that, that's my objective. And my objective is, is I want it to work in every situation. And this is another uh, thing that I've just, you know, observed is that sometimes it works really well, and other times it just doesn't work very well. And whatever, you know, that's, that would be for us to say, well, you know, Jesus is able to save some people, but he's just not able to save other people. And, and we can't come to that conclusion as, as Christians. We can't. Jesus can save everybody. Amen. Jesus can restore everybody's life. And so I don't, I don't want it to be a controversy. I'm just trying to um, communicate to you how I see it, my perspective on it. It's just like... Um, some people might have thought that I was criticizing compost and organic matter, but I wasn't criticizing. I was wanting to put it in its place and its priority so that it could actually fully express its purpose rather than um, being limited because there were things that were necessary in the beforehand. You have to get the chemistry right so that that soil can breathe. And once the soil can breathe, then the carbon fertility and the biology will be fully functional and can do everything for you that God intended them to do. Your experience and your witness will not only be to others, but you will be building that oil in the lamp at the same time to prepare for a time when there won't be any opportunity to put anything in there. Um, and so I guess is that's just, um, I get hammered all the time from these different, from these different directions. And so it's not new to me. Uh, and like I said, I don't want to. I don't want to create any controversies. I, you know, people, you know, have their perspectives on on what they think. But that's just, you know, as I as I've experienced it over the last 25 years. That sometimes it works great to do that, but there's other times it just doesn't work. And what do you tell the person it just doesn't work? How many of you have seen that video, Back to Eden? The idea that you can mulch and and that's just going to solve everything for you too. I have a friend in Colorado. I don't think he'll mind me sharing the story. I won't tell you his name. 
who watched that video, I, when that video came out, I got about 100 phone calls in a week from people asking, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? Well, I had a friend out in Colorado, and he already knew better, but he sounded, you know, if, if it sounds too good to be true, it's probably not. And so he, he bought into the idea, even though I had told him previous to that, based on his soil conditions, that his, that was absolutely the opposite thing he should ever do. He had heavy soils that didn't drain very well because he had high magnesium, high potassium soils. They were tight, low calcium. It wasn't going to drain. So he brought compost in and he put it on. Then he put a mulch, dug it in. Then he put mulch on top of that. And it, it, if you know Colorado, we only get about 12 to 15 inches of rain a year. Well, it happened to be wetter that year. I think we got 20 inches instead. I wasn't actually out there anymore. Um, they got about 20 inches of rain, and it, a lot of it came in the summertime. And his yard turned into a swamp and everything died because he didn't have the conditions for that to work. Mulching is another tool that can be a great, you know, a tremendous asset applied under the right conditions. But whenever somebody puts something out here that says it'll, you know, one thing is going to just solve all these problems for you and it'll one size fits all thing, I would be very suspicious of it. Um, and so he came to me, I was out at the convention at Eden Valley. And he came, and I, tell, I could tell when he was walking to the, it was at the lunchtime, he was walking up to the table, and I could tell by the look on his face, he was like a dog walking with his tail between his legs to um, ask me what I thought and everything. And I just, I knew when he came up, I said, what did you do? Before he even said anything, I said, what did you do? And, and then that's when he told me all about it. He did not have the chemistry. His soil could not breathe. It would not drain because he didn't have the chemistry there to open that soil up so that it could breathe. And so, and he applied that. And if you listen closely, I said, the problem is if you, if you have an ear that can hear and you listen, I, I got the video so I could watch it, so I could answer people better because I hadn't heard of it and I didn't know anything about it. And if you listen, if you have an ear that can pick up what's being said, you pick up several things in the video that were cautionary things that, um, that the average person wouldn't have, wouldn't have even picked up. And so I have, I have uh, people who sell products ask me, how can I... How can I um, sell more product? What, what, could, what advice could you give me to tell the growers so that they would want to buy my product? And I, and I said, the number one thing that you need to be able to do is tell them when your product will not work and you should not buy it. Because there's all kinds of stuff out there. And in their place, in their sphere, they can do really well. They can give you tremendous advantages. But outside of it, you're going to waste your money. Half the time, you're going to create problems for yourself. Um, because you didn't, the foundational, the foundation has to be laid before these other things can properly happen. And uh, so, just wanted to throw that out there so that we can maybe clear up any confusion or, or um, I don't, I don't want to start any conflict, so please don't start a war between us. But <laughs> going back to what he said, no, I said, um, I've just given you my perspective on it, and it's up to you to decide what you think about it and which way. You should never just trust any, everything everybody, anybody says. It's not, it's not me, but it's the information that I'm sharing with you. And if, if it, you, you do your own due diligence and uh, determine that that's, that's the course of action that you believe is appropriate and right, then, then you, you pursue that. But um, whether it's me or somebody else, because just because they say it doesn't mean that it's true. And we can have good intentions. But the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and so that's not, let's not um, 
go just on good intentions. Did you have a question? Yeah, Alaska, that isn't yeah that's John Evans. I know John yeah, Evans. John, yeah. yeah, I know his brother at Roland too. He he produces a uh, uh, compost tea kit compost using the Alaskan tea. humus. It's a great <laughs> it's a great product and it works really well. But if you try to use compost tea to compensate for the lack of proper mineralization and porosity, it's not going to do it. It's just not going to do it for you. I mean, I've n I haven't seen it consistently do it. Okay, so let's move on to this then. Uh, compost is not compost unless it is properly composted. A lot of people do a lot of things that they call composting, but it's not. Sometimes they just have it sitting piled there. You know, a lot of the compost that's used commercially in, in agriculture is coming from feedlots and big large dairies. And they're using so many drugs and, and, and uh, antibiotics and hormones and, and all kinds of stuff like that that the, the stuff is dead. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing in that manure to, to compost it unless you add some kind of inoculants and, and uh, some other material in there to feed the, the organisms, it's not going to compost it. Um, if you put it together wrong and you don't have the right combination of materials, and I didn't put a draw, you know, I, we're, it's beyond the scope of the class to, to go into how do you compost. There's lots of tutorials out there on the internet you can, you can go and look at that are very good on how to, what materials do I put together, how do I put it together so that it will um, it'll properly compost. You need, that, you need that material to heat up. That's telling you that the, biological, the, the biology is exploding in there. They're generating the heat. But if you don't, if, if you don't have it co combined properly, it's, it's not going to properly compost. And so you need to know how to, how to do that. I just point that out because I've had, I, asked, I, I inquired about some material that was, uh, it's a company, uh, Thoroughbred Resources, that, that produces compost um, from all the horse farms in the Lexington area there and the, blue, the bluegrass there. They, they contract to haul all the bedding out and the, and the manure and everything and then they compost it. And I inquired about an analysis and everything and, and <coughs> I went and checked some out and it was so strong of ammonia. It was, they way over, there was way too much nitrogen in, in proportion to carbon in that and it needed to sit about another year or two before anybody used it. Um, it should have, if you get compost, it, sh it, it should have just an earthy. You know what that earthy smell is? You know, after it rains, you dug the soil. It should, that's actinomycetes, that smell you're smelling is, is coming from them. But it should have that earthy smell. If it smells like ammonia or it doesn't smell like anything, um, I would be suspicious about what it actually is and what condi condition it's in. The carbon to nitrogen, nitrogen ratio of finished compost should be about 10 to 1. That's where it should fall. It could range out of that a little bit. It's just a target. If it's, if it's lower than that, you've got too much nitrogen in that, in that material still. And if it starts climbing much beyond, I mean, you can go up to maybe 20 to 1. That's really getting up in the high end of it. But if it, if it goes up, you know, up in that range and higher, um, you don't have enough nitrogen. There wasn't enough <coughs> nitrogen. It's really not thoroughly composted. It's really not thoroughly broken down. And again, it might need to sit for a year before, so that there's time for the, the uh, nitrogen-fixing microbes to, uh, to get the nitrogen they need to finish it. Um, the ash content should be low in the compost. If you have a high ash content in it, there was, means there was a lot of soil added to it. 
Now you can you can add a, you need to add a little bit of soil as an inoculant, but if your ash content is really high, and I can't remember um, the the number that you're targeting there, but it sh it shouldn't be more than like 20 or 30 or something like that. If you start climbing up beyond that, then uh, you got a lot of soil. They added a lot of soil to it. It's not really compost. Well, has anybody ever piled a bunch of glass grass clippings up? And they matted up and they started stinking? Or that they caught on fire? Have you ever read that? Um, there's, a, there's a certain combination of green, uh, I mean, you usually would identify it as green material, it's going to be nitrogen sourcing material. Brown material is going to be carbon sourcing material. Um, you have to get a little bit of familiarity with how much, car what the carbon to nitro nitrogen ratio is of certain things. Like sawdust might be 100 to 1. So, unless you add some some nitrogen materials to that, it's going to take a long time for that to break down into a, a, a condition that you can actually apply it to your soil. Um, whereas you might have grass clippings, the, the ratio might be 5 to 1. That's way too narrow. It's way too much nitrogen for the process. And so you need to mix those materials together and try to, uh, and it requires a little bit of homework. Um, if you think you can go out and do this and, and just not really invest any time or effort into it, uh, you, you need to educate yourself on some of these things and, and how to intelligently apply them if you want good outcomes. If you want your, your, your soil to do well and your crops to do well and everything. Um, and that would be on a tutorial, for example, on how to build a compost pile. They'll tell you, you know, how to kind of combine how much of this material, how much of that material, and everything. It's basically trying to get yourself uh, in, a, in a ratio that's fairly close to that, and we're going to look at that with the manures we're going to look at in just a second, so that it'll, it'll, it'll break down into humus, or, or true compost, even if it's not humus yet, um, fairly quickly, rather than, you, well, you need to know, I'm like, okay, I'm going to mix this, but it's gonna, I'm just going to leave it there for a year, because it's going to take that about that long to, to get where it actually needs to be. Um, another thing you need to know is where there are other ingredients added. A lot of times composters will add calcium, different types of lime to it. Sometimes they're just adding the lime and they don't know whether it's high calcium lime or, or dolomitic lime that they're adding to it. It enhances the bacterial action. The calcium in there will enhance the bacterial action and help it to break down quicker. They're adding that. Sometimes they'll add rock phosphate to it to um, incorporate the phosphate and the calcium into it because that'll also enhance the biological um, activity and accelerate the breaking down of the material. Um, if they're using those materials, you need to know whether they're in there because that'll increase the phosphate levels, it'll increase the calcium levels and potentially the magnesium levels. And if you're already in a situation where you have more of any of those things that you really need, then you need to ask uh, questions about whether or not this is going to be appropriate material to add, add to the uh, soil. Most people don't ask any questions at all anymore. They, they think compost is wonderful, just find a local source and pile it on. And uh, a lot of people are finding out that's not true. You can get away with that for a few years, but then eventually things start going wrong for you and you start having problems. Actually, uh, a lot of Amish and Mennonite who use, they, you know, th we, we live in an Amish community actually, and they'll use their manure because they use horses. They'll use their manure and they'll keep putting it on their gardens. And it winds up, their phosphate levels go too high, their potassium levels go too high, stuff stops producing, they have all kinds of disease and pest pressures. 
And so a lot of these, they get themselves into trouble because they think, well, you know, that's, that source will provide everything for me. And they keep piling it on. I saved my neighbor before his got that bad. He decided to have me test his garden and his pastures this year. And uh, he was right on the border. I said, don't put any more manure on this garden. I said, it's, it's great, but you're at, the, you're at the edge where you're going to go over the top and it's going to start causing you problems. And so um, he listened to me. I, I educated him a little bit so he would understand what I was talking about, but he, it was reasonable to him. And so I said, you can put it out on your pasture. Your pastures still need it. So take it out there and, and start spreading it out there. You don't have to you know, get rid of it. Just use it where it's appropriate to use it. Okay. I know people have different preferences and, and ideas about whether they want to use animal products or not use animal products. I'm going to put these just up here so that you can, you can um, see the different options that you have and then you can choose you know, what, you, what you want to do. Um, these are the different types of manures that can be composted. You can also apply them as, as manure. You can apply them directly to the field, but you have to understand that you might have to wait a little while. And I would recommend waiting a little while until it's fully broken down and, and integrated into the soil. Um, horse manure is what they call, quote, a hot manure. Um, it breaks down really fast. It's about a 32 to 1 carbon to nitrogen ratio. Uh, and it's fairly balanced, so the phosphate, potassium, and uh, nitrogen in it is fairly balanced. Uh, you can see at 32 to 1, it's going to take a little bit for it to get down to 10 to 1, 10, 12 to 1. Cattle manure, now cattle manure can come from two sources. It can be from dairy manure and it can be from, you know, feedlot manure. The dairy manure, um, well, let's just say a carbon to nitrogen ratio is a lot lower. It has higher nitrogen in it than horse manure does. Uh, it's closer to humus formation when composted because the, the carbon nitrogen ratios are, are closer to the 10 to 1. It has higher potassium content in it, and especially if it's coming from a dairy, a dairy manure. Um, and you have, to be, you have to be mindful of that. Poultry manure is another what they call hot manure. Broiler manure is fairly balanced. Layer manure is usually high in calcium. Why would that be? Does anybody know? They're feeding oyster shell to them so, that they can, so it'll strengthen the eggs. Um, and a lot of that just winds up passing through the, the chicken and, and uh, it's into the manure. So it's always going to have a higher calcium content to it. If you need calcium, it's a great source for, um, a, that would be a material that you would want to seek out. Do, do you have a question? It would probably be lower. Okay. Yeah, that's why they supplement it. And the commercial laying off, yeah. That's why the commercial operations put the calcium in there. Of course, they're, they're pushing them like a factory. Um, they're pushing to get as many eggs as possible. And there's just, if they didn't supplement them, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be producing very many eggs. Turkey manure is a good source of copper. I brought that up when we were talking about copper. They supplement copper to turkeys because of their problems with aneurysms. And so if you need copper and you have a source of, of turkey manure, uh, you can get copper pro probably quite a bit cheaper than it would cost you to buy copper sulfate, especially if you can use everything else or need everything else that's in it. Sheep manure is, a, is also a rich manure. It's similar to poultry manure, but a little lower in nitrogen. Um, hog manure, if you can get, I mean, it depends on where you are. I'm just putting these all on here because not everybody is somewhere <laughs> where people are raising sheep or, 
or poultry or, or cattle or whatever. Um, hog manure um, is higher phosphate content. So if you know if you were lacking phosphate, but you had plenty of potassium, then your preference would probably be for that kind of compost because it's higher in that naturally higher in phosphates and lower in potassium relative to that. Uh, if you're if you need potassium and you don't need as much phosphate, well then cattle manure would be would be a material to lean to so that you could slow down the increase of the one uh, while increasing the other one at a little higher rate. And then there's then there's uh, yard and food waste. Um, that would come, you know, it would be scraps uh, coming out of your garden or lawn clippings. Um, when towns shred, chip up trees, <laughs> leaves, leaves from your yard, all that. It can be variable depending on the materials you're actually putting into the, into the compost. If you're putting a lot of vegetable waste, stuff like that, that's going to be higher in nitrogen or the green grass clippings you know, combined with it, uh, it's going to change your carbon to nitrogen ratio. And that's, that's whether you make it into compost. There are also castings that are produced from these wastes where, uh, at the vermiculture where they have the earthworms digest it and produce the castings. Let me say something about earthworm castings right here. People have the idea that if it goes through the gut of a worm that it, all, it just balances it all out for you. It just makes everything good. What it does is it makes things more available, but it makes more available what's there, not it doesn't magically balance it out because it went through the gut of an earthworm. And again here, please don't let me go away saying I'm attacking the earthworms here. Um, earthworms are a tremendous asset in the soil and they're a good indicator that your fertility is getting better. When I, you know, I actually went from having no earthworms to earthworms all over the place. And you don't even know where they come from because when I, with this, this farm we have in Kentucky, um, we, I couldn't find any earthworms in the ground. And this year, when we were doing our, our digging of potatoes and stuff like that, there were earthworms all over the place. So um, they're a tremendous asset when you get to the conditions where they can be a tremendous asset, but they're not going to balance your soil out for you. They make what's available, what's there more available, but they don't change its, its relationship to anything else. They just make it more available for you. Okay, is there any more questions on that? We're, uh, we're going to finish this well usually it's fresher material so I mean even tree trippings like if they trip up tree branches and all the leaves were green on it and fresh and it's green in there you probably have a, you have probably quite a bit more nitrogen in there than if it sat there for or they did it in the middle of the winter when when it was dormant you, you wouldn't have as much but it's generally the fresher it is the greener it is the more color it has to it is an indicator of, of higher nitrogen content the, the browner it is, the drier it is, is indication of higher carbon. Where is the nitrogen going in that time period? A lot, some of it's volatilizing. It's okay. just going back into the air. Uh, sometimes. Sometimes it's wonderful. I just put, my father-in-law had a tremendous need for potassium and, and calcium on these areas where they were in really bad shape and he thought you could just test the whole area. He said, well, can I use this ash? And I said, yeah, sure. So we just figured out, you know, what the content was, and then I calculated out how much to put on where, and you put it on. So yeah, it can be a tremendous benefit, but if you put it on and you didn't need it, you already had too much of those things, then no, it wouldn't be a good idea. So it depends. 
That's why you need to know what, what the conditions are that you have, not what somebody else has. Because somebody could say, well, I put my wood ash on there and everything just grew like crazy and it was wonderful. Well, it was most likely it was deficient in that stuff and putting it on, it just made it do a whole lot better. And then somebody decides, well, I'm going to do that too and I throw it on there. And he already had plenty or too much of that and he just went over the top with it. And Well, man, nothing grew in my garden. What happened? How come it did? That's why when we look to each other for our examples, we get ourselves into trouble because what we need is not necessarily what somebody else needs. Okay, let's, um, we're going to move on to water now. I recommend that you have it tested once a year until you get a good track record, until you know what its char characteristics are and, and you've got it brought into a position of balance. It usually takes three to five years to, to really understand what's, what's going on. Now, the biggest, the biggest drag on that is um, the biggest drag is the liming materials, the calcium and the magnesium. But in, uh, within the last 10 years, that's really dramatically been, the time frames have been shortened because they're now doing the pelletized limes where they're grinding it to a, a 300 mesh fineness and then they're building it into a pellet for you to apply. That'll break down in six months to 12, 12 months, six to 12 months. And so you can have those p uh, materials applied and to where you want them to be within six to 12 months. It used to take you know, three years to get that done. And so that's one of the most limiting ones. The other thing that limits is some things just can't be put on in more than, um, you know, max, there's max, maximum amounts that you should put on at any given time. Sometimes you can't put things on until other things are straightened out, and then you can start putting those things on. So it's good, I, I, I test, I grow high value stuff. Some people consider some of the things that I grow low-value stuff, but everything I grow, I consider high-value stuff. And I for sure grow a lot of high-value things. And so there's some times when I test twice a year, every six months, because I, I want to know exactly what's going on and, and, and what I can do to make sure that um, I can keep that, that soil system at its optimum, doing what it, what it needs and providing to make sure it has everything that it needs. Not everybody has to do that. Um, but once, you, like I said, once you have a track record on, if you want to go to every other year, or every third year, or whatever, that's that would be up to you as an individual as to you know how important the information is to you. I test every year because I want to know what's going on on a regular basis. Because you can have, we're going to talk about the environmental influences. You can have environmental influences that will come in and wreak havoc on your <coughs> on your soil. For the last two years in Kentucky, we've had record rainfall, and so it's um, we had a lot of. We had a beautiful potato crop, and then it started raining and wouldn't quit, and it just started leaching all the nitrogen out, and um, just kept the, the soil waterlogged because it just never had a chance to really dry out, or, or even to get all of the, the the gravitational water out of it so that there was some air in it, and so it kind of the potatoes kind of bit the dust. So you know, I know there's going to be um, anything that's leachable when you have you know, that much rain. We had as much rain in a couple months as it would take eight months to get normally. Um, Alan's not in here, but Alan can speak to this too. They had all the rain they were supposed to. Did you guys have the same situation where you had so you know things things can happen that can affect you know that can affect y your soil, and so you have to take that into mind when you're. Is there a kit that you recommend, or is it a standard lab? Or um, there is a lab. It's Perry Labs through Kinsey Ag Services, KinseyAg.com. If you want to do the modeling that I'm sharing here, there are other labs out there 
um, I don't know how to, to use their numbers to tell you what to do um, to get to this, to this condition. My condition is that it needs to come to the place where it's fully functional, the disease pressure's gone, the weed pressure's gone, and the, the insect pressure's gone. If it hasn't gotten to that place, then it's not where it needs to be because those things will be eliminated by a fully functioning soil system. Okay, so I just put this on here again. What we want is on that, this half here is pore space, but half of that pore space you want filled with water. Um, and these are both, both representative, representative of the Holy Spirit, both of them, of the, the will of God or the Spirit of God on that side. They're both fluid, in the way, and it means that they can move and go places where uh, solids can't go. Um, everything, all growth happens in a medium of water, and if you don't have that, if you don't have that moisture there and available, it will um, things won't go well. <coughs> this is the water cycle. I just pulled this off the U.S. Geological Survey's stuff just to give you an idea that water is in motion. It's not. It's not um, just like the air is in motion. It's it's moving, and. Uh, the key is to keep it where you need it on a regular basis and not leave and, and uh, you not have it available. Okay, so we need to look at uh, soil water. We need to look at the three categories of water because we want it, what we're shooting for is we want optimum water levels in the soil, but we don't want more water than we, than we need there. And the three types of water are what they call hydroscopic water it's a microscopic film of water surrounding the soil particles, and it has a strong molecular, molecular attraction. Water cannot be removed by natural forces. In other words, you can have water in the soil, but the plants cannot get it. They're, they're competing with, the, with the, attract, the, the electrochemical attractive forces of the, of the colloids and the soil particles, and once it gets close enough to those, the ability for the root to pull it off or the micro to pull it off, it, it can't do it. It's, um, and we won't worry about the technicalities on the bottom there. Capillary water is water held by cohesive forces. Um, I, I don't know if you, any, you remember your chemistry class in, in high school or whatever, but cohesive forces that are kind of attracted to each other. So the water is attracted to the water, it's kind of held um, as a result of that. Between films, by cohesive forces between films of hydroscopic water. It can be removed by air drying or plant absorption. Plants extract capillary water until the soil capillary force is equal to the extractive force. In other words, the hydroscopic, um, it's down to hydroscopic water. That's what they call the wilting point. That's when your plants will start wilting. There's water in the soil still, but they cannot get it. And so they start wilting. Uh, and then there's gravity water, water that moves through the soil by the force of gravity. And that's, that's um, let me just mention the one at the bottom. Field capacity is the amount of water held in the soil after excess water is drained, and it's called the field capacity of the soil. It's in other words, how much water can actually be held in any given type of soil. Um, but this gravity water, this is water where the field, and there's not a picture on this, but where for a time the field is saturated. In other words, there is no air in it. There's, it's full of water, but it can't be held by electrochemical 
forces attraction and so it just keeps the gravity just pulls it down through the water and it takes it out of the out of the soil this the problem is we had perpetual gravity water in our fields this year uh, because the it was just so much rain that it just and we have a heavier soil and so it it takes a little bit longer for it to, to percolate through it and move through it but it's capillary water that you want you want to be at that level uh, which is what they call field capacity you don't want more than that and you don't want less than that and so it's really important um, that this gravity water can actually move on through the soil and if you don't have the pro proper porosity in the soil um, instead of having 25 percent of that pore space filled with with air and 25 with water you may only have 10 percent filled with air and um, 40 percent filled with water that's not that's not optimal conditions uh, and so what you do wh when we talk about the chemistry your chemistry is determined by what the, the texture in your soil is and what the cation exchange capacity is because it, let's say you have a heavier clay soil are you gonna you gonna want more pore space or less pore space you're gonna want more pore space you're gonna need to do something that's gonna open it up more it needs to be opened up more what if you have a sandy soil you want smaller pore spaces what you're trying to do is get optimum capillarity in that soil you want that water to be able to move around in that soil but not saturate it so that there's no air exchange in there and so that's where the chemistry comes there and that's where you adjust the calcium and the magnesium ratios depending on how heavy the soil is um, and high, the high exchange capacity to, uh, to get the porosity and the water capillarity at their optimum levels. Um, so again, proper chemistry is going to give you proper porosity and it will also give you proper capillarity. In other words, water dynamics in your soil will be optimum. You can hold the optimum amount of water without pushing out or excluding the porosity, the airspace, and its ability to breathe. Yeah, we did, and when we were doing the chemistry part of it, and and just you know quickly, ca calcium flocculates the soil, so it takes the clay colloids, these plates, and it turns them face to edge or edge to edge, and that creates um, pore pore space, whereas magnesium takes them and aggregates them face to face, and so that makes it tighter. Right. Well, at three feet, you would be hard pressed to subsoil. Um, there are machines that can actually go down four feet, but uh, they're pretty expensive and they're pretty big. <coughs> they use for reclamation. No, what your ultimate goal is, you, you've got to get enough of a zone that, can, that has that porosity so that the water will at least move down and hopefully move, move laterally to get out of the, to get out of the growing zone. Um, but the ultimate goal is calcium is heavy and it, works, it starts working its way down. And so this guy, like in Illinois, he'd been working on that for you know, quite a while. And eventually, this whole, this whole process works itself deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, as long as you, can, you continue to maintain the upper, the upper levels of it. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in a short period of time. So what do people um, do that don't have, you know, six, seven years to let this happen? Do they put drain tiles in? Is that, is some, some people put drain tiles in. There's another approach that you can use. You can use a soil conditioner. And a soil conditioner breaks down the surface tension in the soil, and it can actually move water through um, even heavy soils like that. But what we consider heavy, when you get the right chemistry there, I, I, I was at a, a field on a farm uh, this summer, 
and it has that sharky gumbo clay, this blackish colored, it's, it's like modeling clay, it's what it feels like, if any of you have ever ex experienced that. But that field had a beautiful stand of Milo in it, uniform all the way across it, big huge heads, and so you had never thought, how in the world did that, that those plants get roots down into that heavy stuff? But he had the right calcium and magnesium balance on that soil. And with the irrigation and the, and the moisture coming from the irrigation and everything, it was able to grow, grow right down through it. But you can use a soil conditioner. Soil conditioner um, will break the surface tension in the soil and then water can actually slip through there and, uh, and go on through. You have to be really careful using that. Um, I know of a landscaper in California who they couldn't get, the soil was hard just a half inch down. You couldn't get, even get a soil probe in it. You whack on it, whack on it, whack on it, it wouldn't go down. And he used a soil conditioner on there, but he, he was one of those people that thought a if a little's good, a lot's better. And he put a lot on, and the, the client's trees all fell over. <laughs> there, was no, there was no holding ability the electrochemical holding ability the structure that would hold the tree, it just fell out of the, they all just fell out of the ground because all of the surface tension was, was removed. Um, so you have to know how much to apply, but you can, you can use something like that to get better, uh, better drainage of the soil. Can you just apply that through an injection system, through your irrigation system? Yeah, but like I said, you've got to be careful what you're growing and how much, how much you apply. Otherwise, all your, if you're growing a, a, a taller plant, it could even be like a pepper plant and it'd be up this high and if you've got too much there it'll just fall over once it starts getting fruit on it it'll just fall over right out of the ground or if you get wind come along and just blow everything will just be laying on the ground so there are ways of getting around these kind of things you, you kind of have to use them judiciously if if you're in a situation where you have to do something about it then that's an option to but it does work its way down in, through the soil profile um, and eventually starts changing the, the characteristics of the, of the whole, of a, even deeper into the profile. Does gypsum work that way to loosen heavy soil? That's, it can. Okay, let me give you that answer. It can, and this is where people get themselves into trouble again. Remember I said that you have to have a minimum calcium level in the soil before you ever start using gypsum? If you'd like, you need to drive stuff out, for example. If you, if you start using gypsum and you don't have adequate calcium there and, and, and adequate structuring, um, you'll eventually tighten that soil up so hard it won't grow anything because you'll wind up losing calcium rather than... And so th there are conditions where, yes, that would be a good way of... Um, that's the whole thing. They say that'll soften the soil, and, and it will. It's a good crop to help loosen clay soil and risk. Broccoli? Uh, oh, buckwheat, buckwheat. Yeah, anything that's, um, yeah, so these things, if you know you have those kind of conditions, you want to start using a crop or something like that where, you know, where you can't pull a subsoil three feet deep. Uh, if you start working on the conditions, an alfalfa plant might be able to, to penetrate three feet deep. That's another, yeah, that I didn't mention. You can also use uh, plants that can actually penetrate down. That's why thistle grows really well in low soils. They get hard, and they can actually penetrate through those hard layers. Have you ever seen, ever done a, dug a bindweed out in a hard soil and see how it's all just coiled around and wiggled around? It's just really working to get itself through there, but it can get through that hard soil and, and uh, get down and start mining out the calcium that's needed to, for it to grow. And that's why other things won't grow because it can't get the roots down in there and, and grow right. Um, if you don't have the right chemistry, 
Have you ever seen concrete blocks where they mix sand and, and cement and, and other materials? That's what you'll produce if you don't have the right chemistry. <laughs> so I've had people do that. They brought in truckloads of dump truckloads of sand, figure, well, I'll mix a different texture into the soil. But if you don't have the chemistry, you just really just added some more ingredients to make it even more like cement than Actually, the hardest soils are, are sandy soils when they're not, when they're, don't have adequate calcium levels and they have excessive magnesium levels. You'll break soil probes trying to hammer them into them. They will turn like, they will turn like one of those concrete blocks. And you just can't. So the, the, the texture of the soil is not what's important because, you know, unless you're going to spend a fortune digging it all up and hauling it away and digging it all up on something else and bringing it in, it's about changing the conditions of that, that, uh, texture. The texture is what you have. You have so much sand, silt, and clay. It's about providing the chemistry that'll actually open that up and, and make it be able to breathe. Okay, we need to talk about water quality here. There are issues, you know, if, if, you, if you're just depending on rain, well, the water quality can actually be affected even with that, depending on where you are. If you're in a highly industrialized area, even if you're out in the country, if you're downwind, um, or even if you're not downwind, uh, when it rains, <coughs> people don't realize that there's, uh, there's, uh, that water condenses on particles in the air. And so it may be stuff coming from the factory um, 50 miles, 100 miles away from you. The, the moisture is, con is, the water's condensing on it, and then it's falling as rain and bringing it all with it onto your, onto your farm. So it's helpful to, to know what might be up, upwind from you. <laughs> Or, up, or upstream from you, that, but you're not going to stop that. It's, it's, it's just good to be mindful, well, you know, I got these things coming in. Uh, if you have a cement plant or something like that upwind from you, and you may have or a, um, a glass plant where they have, you're going to have high manganese levels. Uh, they're going to be coming downwind and, and falling possibly with the rain. Well, it might be a good idea to know that that's actually coming in your, coming in your rainwater. If you're testing on a regular basis, it's going to tell you it's coming, <laughs> coming in the rainwater. So I didn't add that. Where'd it come from? Um, so suspended solids are just, you know, they're, they're, they can be colloids, you know, clay particles. Uh, if it's small enough that it can suspend, usually colloid colloidal materials, humus, you know, humus materials, clay materials can suspend in the water. Um, it's small enough you can get, if it's moving water, you can get other um, solid materials in it. Again, it's just, it, it's a good idea. I, I've, I've learned this since I started doing consulting that, that um, how much water quality is impacting, quantity and quality is impacting people's uh, growing situation. And so it's another one of those things I recommend you do is you, whatever your water source, if you're just depending on rain, well, uh, you, you're not going to sit out there and capture because that can change. So you, monitoring your soil is going to be what you're going to have to do. But if you're using groundwater from a well or some kind of irrigation source, a ditch or something like that, you may want to find out what's coming with it. Uh, there can also be soluble salts in the water. This is particularly the case if you're using groundwater. You can have a whole lot of soluble materials, calcium, magnesium, uh, materials, sodium, uh, boron, potassium. There's lots of things that can come, soluble salts coming in there. And depending on where you are in the country, 
that may be more likely or less. If you're using surface water like snowmelt or, or rainwater or something like that, well, it might pick up some things when it's flowing down, but then, you know, by and large, they don't have a whole lot of, of those soluble salts in them, except if, uh, let's see, Sean's not here, is he? Uh, except if you're out west, some of the places out west, uh, Daystar Academy is at the base of the La Salle Mountains. Well, La Salle is Spanish for the salt mountains. <coughs> and so everything that comes washing, the snow melt coming down off of those mountains is bringing a lot of stuff with it. And uh, you can let... Uh, you can talk to him and he'll tell you all about it. Water quality is harder in some cases to deal with than soil fertility. It's a, it's a contaminated spirit, if you want to put it that way. It's bringing stuff with it that you don't want. And if you're not mindful of it being there, you're not going to be able to compensate, try to compensate. I think of Jericho, you know, and the, the poisoned water there. That probably relates to this, the next sector. The, the last thing on there, bicarbonates that just, how many, know, how many people know what bicarbonates are? Yeah, I know you know, Alan. <laughs> um, it's HCO3, and it usually, it's either attached to a hydrogen, but it, it's, um, what you need to know about bicarbonates is they react with cations, and so if it's sodium bicarbonate, they do a measurement called SAR, sodium absorption ratio, and what, all it does is it tells you if your water, how much, how much calcium and magnesium you have to offset the sodium that's coming with the bicarbonate. Because what'll happen there, you'll have a reaction, the sodium will come off, it'll grab the calcium uh, and sometimes iron and uh, deposit the sodium. And what happens to your soil? What, did, I, did I say what happens to soil when it's high in sodium? With, with the, there's a lot of sodium on the colloids. It disperses it, it just collapses it and it all just like a soup will flow and fill every pore in the in the soil and then you have that hard rock, that hard chunk of soil that's um, from, the, from that. So um, how do you deal with these types of things? Well, first off, you have to determine how do I need to deal with it? Is it something that's going to be a problem for me if it's something that's not going to be a problem for me? For example, in, in Allen's soil, he's got high bicarbonates, but he doesn't have sodium. And so he has calcium and magnesium coming in his water, and so if he, and his calcium levels are high, so if the bicarbonate ties the calcium up, it's not adversely affecting his soil structure. But in a different situation where you had sodium coming with the bicarbonates and it's knocking off your calcium and you don't have naturally high levels of calcium as it is, it's going to adversely affect your soil structure in short order. You're going to lose your structuring because the sodium is going to take the place of the calcium on the colloids and uh, you'll, you'll lose your soil structure. And sodium is worse than, than any of them. Magnesium tightens the soil up, but sodium just totally plugs it up. I mean, it just totally seals it up. And uh, you can't get any, any porosity or capillarity, appropriate capillarity going there. So that would be the big thing on, the co that on those. The soluble salts, if you've got a lot of those materials coming in on your irrigation water, if you're using irrigation water, um, you'll have to determine how much is coming in based on how much water I'm using and do I need to do something to offset that? So let's say you had high calcium and high magnesium coming in on your water. Um, you may need to, and you already have good levels, you don't, and over time you might start building it up based on the quantity that's coming in. Um, you, may want to, you may want to compensate for that by adding, making sure that you keep sulfur levels at a higher level in your soil so that it'll continue to leach out. 
that excess. Uh, the water, the groundwater I had out in Colorado, where we just moved from, based on the amount of water we had to apply, we were putting 200 pounds of salt, salt, sodium chloride. We were putting 200 pounds of salt per acre onto that land. And if we didn't put something on there to keep it moving, uh, we had problems until I figured out what was going on. We had problems where the soil was just getting hard. And you'd see crusting on the surface. Because we're, we're in an area, and this is another important thing to realize, we were in an area out there where there was net evaporation. Out in the east, you have net infiltration or runoff. And, but out west there, you know, we had, to try, we had a hard time getting water to go down. We would really have to apply the water. It would want to come back up, and when the water would evaporate, well, the water went back to the, into the air, and the, the salt stayed behind. And so we'd get this white crusting on the, on the surface of the soil. Well, you can imagine putting 200 pounds of sodium uh, on the soil. And so we, we had to compensate by that. We had to overload with calcium, because that was what would, it, would, it would kick off. And uh, we had to over, overload with sulfur to keep that situation. And then we had to really water heavily. We had to do re regular heavy waterings that were infiltrating water waterings where we would push that all down out of the, out of the root zone. Um, like I said, dealing with water quality is a, a, is a much bigger headache than, because it's, it's constantly coming in and interfering with everything you're trying to do to, to restore balance to your soil. I can restore balance to the soil. If I have clean water, I can restore the balance to the soil and it'll stick and it'll stay that way. But when, you have the, when they have the contaminants coming in with the water, uh, it's pretty bad. Suspended solids are generally not a significant issue. Um, it's usually the soluble salts and the carbonates and bicarbonates that come in. And again, if you, you, knowing what you have, if you have bicarbonates but you don't have the sodium with it, you're not going to get the adverse effect. It may tie up. This is where it may tie up calcium. And so, you, you know, it just turns it to calcium carbonate. When you have the, uh, the sodium ion coming with the carbonate, it, it changes places with the calcium. And then there's calcium carbonate instead of sodium bicarbonate, the way it reacts. Um, and you can re-release re that. You can get that to break down and back to the calcium. And, uh, so, but you need to you know where your levels are and how much water you're putting on. Is it going to tie up too much in the growing season? Or are you going to have to compensate for that and put extra on to take care of that? Do anybody in here have those kind of problems? There are other solutions, for example, with the, the bicarbonates. Um, you can use, a, uh, like certified organic growers, they have sulfur burners where you can actually burn sulfur and it creates a sulfurous acid that injects into the water and it reacts with the bicarbonate and neutralizes it uh, before it can actually cause the problems. Commercial growers will use sulfuric acid, which is highly hazardous but effective at neutralizing the bicarbonate. You can use phosphoric acid. Um, it's a little less dangerous, but it doesn't, it, you have to use more of it to get it to work. And you can actually use um, humic acids, citric acids, you can use those things, but again, they take quite a bit, quite a bit of material to, to neutralize, depending on how much bicarbonate you have coming into your water. Um, so does anybody have any questions, on, any specific questions on that? Because I usually run in, the, this is a more perplexing thing, thing for growers than the soil fertility is. Yeah, okay, so if you're gonna use 
uh, county water or city water or something like that, yes, you have to know what they're putting in it. And obviously they're putting chlorine in it. Um, the way you can get around that not being a problem is just run it into a retention pond or, or bubble it through something and the chlorine will dissipate off gas out of there and you can get the majority of it out before you put it on. If they're putting fluoride in the water, um, that's a whole other issue, but it's, it, it can actually be moved through the soil too. And, but there can be a lot of uh, VOCs or volatile organic compounds in there because a lot of times the water sources they're getting have a lot of chemicals that have washed into it. Um, I just found out that the source of our, our county water is coming from a lake that's just downstream from a, a nuclear waste, hazardous waste storage site. <laughs> so I wasn't too excited about that. Um, what, what time are we supposed to stop? I need to check my thing. Five? Okay. Well, we're at 5.09. Um, the only other part on this, and, and maybe if you have specific questions that, that I was going to talk about, would be different methods of irrigation. Um, we, can, we can do that just briefly in the, in the next class tomorrow if you want. It's really about, well, let me just get, were you, some of you are in here when I was giving the illustration about growing melons in an area where you're not, spo you, you you're not supposed to be able to do it. Um, you need to take, how you irrigate needs to take into consideration, one, how much water you have available to you, and two, what are the other conditions? Like in those conditions, we were sprinkle irrigating. We had, we had solid set irrigation line, and you know, when you blow it up on, in the air and you and put it down on those plants and it's flash evaporating, you're slowing down the maturity of your crop because energy is being consumed to, to restore the temperature of that crop that's, that's being pulled out of it the heat that's being pulled out of it by the irrigation in a dry climate like that. Now, if you're in a humid climate and you're putting it on, um, it's not the same conditions. That's why you need to know what your environmental influences are, which we're going to talk about, um, and determine. So we went to drip irrigation on a lot of the area that we wanted to accelerate growth, where we were marginal with our season being able to get those crops in because of the cool night temperatures and irrigating with sprinkle irrigation. We were just flash evaporating and just pulling heat out of the out of the crop. Um, flood irrigating, which you're, where you're going to flood a lot of water through the soil. If you have lots of water and you set up that way, you have to be sure that you're not leaching out. Um, it, it can be good if you need to get stuff out of the soil. Actually, there was a, a company out in uh, Utah. They bought they bought this land really cheap. They put it to grade. It was high in sodium. Iron sodium, so stuff wouldn't grow there. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.